0: Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. I object! And why is that, Mr. Reed? Because it's
1: devastating to my case!
0: I did, you know, the murders, but uh, as you're all so looking forward to this, I thought I'd plead not guilty. say a man who represents
1: himself as a fool for a client. Well, with God as my witness, I am that fool. Mr. Simpson, this is the most blatant case of fraudulent advertising since my suit against the film The NeverEnding Story.
2: Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer, This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast.
0: Hello, and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode 159. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. That over there is your other host, Andrew Torres. Andrew, how are you doing? I am great.
1: Uh, I am really, really excited, not only about this episode, but we're doing our live patron Q&A tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're listening to this when the show drops on Tuesday, March 27th, we're going to do our live Q&A, 8.30, my time, Eastern, 5.30, your time, Pacific. And uh, you can figure out if you're in one of those other unimportant time zones in between those two. Uh, but, and uh, there we will be that.
0: an appearance by Baby Opening Argument Smith. She's oh. cute as a button. You don't want to miss it. So Andrew will be providing the legal knowledge. I'll be providing the baby. That's, that's a good yeah. I'll see, <laughs> if, I'll I'll I see if I can't
1: get my puppy to bark in the background. <laughs> and, you
0: know. Awesome. Can't wait. Yeah, check that out, patrons. It's, it's the least we can do for your amazing support. I hope you enjoy it as much as we do. All right, well, uh, let's get right into it, shall we? I'm excited about today's episode. Going to learn a bit about Watergate and compare it to what's going on these days and of course we've also got a uh, an update on the republican tax bill and uh, later on we'll have a listener question which they're always good we've got intelligent listeners and those are always fun so fun episode let's get started shall we thank you dr hibbert i rest my case you rest your case what oh no i thought that was just a figure of speech case closed. All right Andrew, uh, why is this a closed arguments? The uh, continuing unintended consequences of the Republican tax bill. I'm very curious about uh where you're going with this one. Yeah, so one of the things that is
1: just an undeniable fact about the Republican tax bill, whether you agree in broad measure with the idea that we should have cut corporate taxes in half and added a a trillion dollars to the deficit, or you don't, uh, you can probably figure out where where we come in, uh, (laughs) is that the bill is a massive overhaul to the tax code that was rammed through in a record short time due to our political system. That is not a unique feature, right? Our legislature is is pretty broken and, you know, you can argue about uh, democratic bills under President Obama. This, this is a, but the point is this radically overhauled our tax system and most people who are lawyers like me who deal with tax questions, accountant friends that I know, we're still trying to figure out everything that's in this bill. Mm. And I want to point out a situation where the deletion of one word in a very very obscure provision of the tax code uh is designed Ooh. a to save 31 billion dollars which was necessary in order to uh manipulate this tax bill under the yeah uh, to, t- to offset rules. the
0: trillion dollar deficits just enough to where they yep. could get it through yeah uh
1: and and b where there are unintended consequences for Major League Baseball, the National Basketball Ooh. Association, for all of the sports that all of us love and hold dear. This is a crazy wild ride. So so hold Ooh, on. Ooh, <laughs> I'm excited. Okay. It begins with 26 USC section 1031.
0: I know it well. No. yeah, just yeah, yeah. Well, so <laughs> yeah, So yeah, Thomas will it. recite it from there. Yeah, memory. yeah. Here, um, let me yeah. think here. I'll, I'll, I'll get you started. It yeah, says, go ahead. No, yeah,
1: yeah, it says, no gain no, or loss no, shall be recognized yeah. mm-hmm. on the exchange of property held for productive use in a trade or business or for investment if such property is exchanged solely for property of like kind, which is to be held for either productive use in a trade or business or for investment.
0: Investment. Yeah, okay. You know, I was yeah. right there with you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what does that mean? Well- Uh, it it means two things. First, there is this niche little real estate business where real estate companies that owned commercial properties could swap out those commercial properties for residential properties and vice versa. It will not surprise you to know that Donald Trump is involved in that business. It also meant, however, that smaller businesses, usually smaller businesses could exchange assets and not have to go through valuing the assets, selling the assets, buying the new ones. And let me give you a real world example of of how that Comes to be. Sometimes you're an owner of a franchise and the parent company of the franchise is bought by another company. Hmm. And a classic example of this is the uh, fast food chain Hardee's, which is also um, oh, Carl's, yeah. Jr., Carl's Jr., I think, Jr. out where you are, right? Yep. In the 1970s, they bought a huge fast food chain called Sandy's. In the 1980s, they bought a, a chain called Burger Chef. And in the 1990s, they bought Roy Rogers. And so in each of those cases, If you were the owner of a Roy Rogers franchise, now all of a sudden you're a Hardee's franchise. So you've got to swap out your sign that says Roy Rogers for a sign that says Hardee's. you got to swap out your, you know, one kind of grill for the other kind of grill. I don't don't know. I don't really eat it. That's
0: probably all the same crap. (laughs) Uh, but you have these assets right
1: and without this provision in the code you would have to say okay well we're selling the roy rogers sign that's worth this we're buying the hardy sign that's worth this and you have to pay taxes on the difference this like kind rule said you know what we can just refit your
0: restaurant okay so all right so let's try to save a bit of yeah paperwork eh, red tape kind of thing just yeah swap it out exactly So
1: what did the tax bill do? The tax bill inserted the word real into section 26 USC Uh. 1031. So now it says no gain or loss shall be recognized on the exchange of real property. You know, blah, blah, blah. Right. So you have to exchange real property for other real property. In the law, the phrase real property does not to distinguish it from imaginary property. It's yeah, real estate, right? Land. Yeah, exactly. It means land. So it preserves. This provision for people who do what Donald Trump does, right, which is yeah. swap out land. Uh, but it eliminates the like kind exchange for anybody, for any business that is exchanging personal property, non real estate property that's owned by the business. So, our Hardy's franchise owner. Um, and so you might say, well, that seems kind of weird that that would save. Oh, yeah. not 31- So you're saying
0: not only does it add the real aspect, the real estate land aspect to it, it gets rid of. The other thing. Exactly. And that's how it saves the $31 billion. Oh, my God. So now you're going to
1: ask yourself, all right, you promised at the beginning of this segment that this would have to do with Major League Baseball. And Mm. because our listeners are huge sports fans, here's what it has to do with Major League Baseball. And I swear to you, this is not – I'm not making this up. Now suppose uh, as happened, for example, the Miami Marlins – trade oh. Giancarlo Stanton to the New York Yankees for three terrible players. Um, <laughs> which really did happen in this offseason. It was criminal. It was a terrible, awful trade. Do they have to pay taxes on the difference in um, value yeah. between Giancarlo Stanton and the garbage they got back from the Yankees? Um, now you would say, no, teams don't play teams don't pay taxes on when they trade players, but the reason teams don't pay taxes when they trade players is because of a 1967 ruling from the IRS. Um, In fact, in 1967, major league baseball wrote to the IRS and said, Hey, if we swap one player for another, is that, are we going to have to pay taxes on bringing in that new asset? And the IRS issued a ruling and that ruling said, no, Uh, you know why you don't have to pay taxes? Because, of Section 26 U.S.C. 1031. Well, yeah, and this essentially is a like it's, kind of, it's kind, kind of a wash,
0: week. right? I mean, it's as far as the federal government is concerned, you would think that it's just swapping players, you know, it, it'll be offset one way or the other, wouldn't
1: it? You would think, but what you'd have to do without this provision, without 26 U.S.C. 1031. Yeah, one
0: team would have an increase in taxes and the other team would have a uh, decrease possibly, right? I mean, yeah, have you'd, have to, you'd have stuff. to do
1: have that transaction. You'd have to value the assets. Yeah. Right. And major how do you value an asset, right? What is what is the worth of Giancarlo Stanton, right? Like a, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to have to 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 have to do that. So yeah, and think about it beyond the. The trade context, right? Like the last round of expansion in the NHL, right? Mm. Uh, in which Ugh. new teams come in, and now, yeah, well, I'm, I'm with which, you on that. Yeah, we're,
0: well, my my sharks are just, well, as as of our recording, we're just about to play the uh, Vegas Golden Knights, and the Vegas Golden Knights are the one of the best teams in the NHL because of the way they did the expansion, uh, <laughs> and they only added one team, and it's to my division, it's to my team's division, so that makes it. Harder for the for us to get to the playoffs. That's what you're going to talk about, right? The That's Sharks exactly playoffs. what I was okay. going to talk about. You
1: know what I'm going to say is, right, if you think about it, if it were any other business, right, you would say, okay, well, you've taken an asset and you have transferred it from mm-hmm. the teams that lost players to the Las Vegas expansion franchise. They now have this new asset. Shouldn't they have to pay taxes on it? And the answer to all of these questions was settled by IRS ruling 67-380. So again, Nineteen It's been settled for 51 years, which says, yeah, look, these are like kind exchanges. No, you don't have to pay taxes. Could you, I mean, could you imagine, add to the complexity right now, particularly in the NBA with the salary cap, if a team in order to decide whether to trade for a player not only has to figure out the contract, who they're going to give up, how they're going to pay, right? All, but now they've got to figure out like the differential value of the market values of the players in order to pay taxes to comply with that, right? Like it would clearly describe Discourage trades in baseball. And that's what Major League Baseball has said. And for 50 years, they've relied on this IRS ruling. But the IRS ruling, in turn, relies on the old version of 26 USC 1031. Mm. By inserting the word real in front of property, Giancarlo Stanton was property of the Miami Marlins. He is now his contract, is now property of the New York Yankees. But his contract is not real property. (laughs) He is not a piece of land. That ruling very clearly does not apply, and that justification does not apply. And so, the NBA and Major League Baseball I'm going to link this New York Times article have asked the IRS, Are you going to tax us on trades? And the IRS has said nothing. The oh, IRS wow. has refused to answer. The chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, who is uh, Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, uh, has refused to comment. There, nobody knows. Nobody wow. knows whether teams can trade players thanks to the operation <laughs> of the GOP tax bill uh that was crammed through the Senate in uh, at the end of 2017. So I find this unbelievably strange as an unintended consequence. Uh maybe uh maybe our listeners w- w- will or or won't sort of share in, in that shock, but um
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, One uh, word uh, in a <laughs> changes a 50 year precedent oh man yeah uh, this is what happens when because what sometimes what happened, there are magic words
1: yeah i mean what happened in the creation of of this tax bill was Everybody was racing to try and figure out how to offset as much revenue as possible because you needed to uh, get this under the reconciliation rules. And when you do that, when you start striking down and modifying provisions, uh, you, there's there's an entire edifice that's, that's built upon that. And this is why maybe you shouldn't ram through a complete overhaul to the tax code in a week and a half at the end of December. But that's a different uh. show.
0: So frustrating. Well, yeah, I, that's really interesting. I guess so. That what happens when the IRS doesn't say? I mean, do you just you don't you don't normal? like
1: literally? You have to guess, right? Like this. Yeah. This is advice I give to my clients all the time. Like when if if the government is silent, if there are no operative restrictions, then what you have to do is you got to look at it and go. Yeah, our best guess is, uh, this, but, uh, but you need to put error bars around that. You need to do that to be sure. I I would, if, if I were a lawyer for Major League Baseball, for any of the major sports, uh, franchises or for any individual teams, which by the way, if you're looking for outside legal counsel, give me a call. I I would love to, I would love to do that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I would advise them that, that they're going to have to reserve and, and potentially pay taxes on this. Right? Wow. I would advise them to take that into account because it is very clear, right? The in-kind exchange rules do not apply to personal property. Uh, uh, that's that's what I would no tell longer, them. Now, are, yeah. are they going to get a change between now and 2019? That they, they might, right? Sports sports teams have a, uh, a a pretty good track record at at being able to lobby uh, uh, being able to lobby Congress, but yeah. um, but as of right now, uh, that's that's the law that's where we stand and um wow. you know it's a lesson about uh it's a lesson about messing with uh, with laws yeah. you don't understand
0: well i i mean thank god they didn't do the same thing yet with healthcare and just ram through a total repeal and replace that had, no one had any plan for in like a week I mean, who knows yeah, right. how many equivalent scenarios that are even worse would would come to pass all right, well, uh, very interesting breakdown. That's a closed argument. And now we've got to get to uh, Watergate. I'm, I'm excited. Let's learn more about this. Stupid Watergate. A scandal with all the potential ramifications of Watergate, but where everyone
1: involved is stupid and bad at everything. don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. Yes, yeah, I have that impression. You <laughs> see, one can only be angry with
0: those he respects. Andrew, okay, so Watergate uh, was bad. You're saying you, is, <laughs> is that I, I, your claim? I think, yeah,
1: I think all of us agree Watergate was bad, but I've seen a lot going around that suggests that. Uh, Yeah, but that's, you know, Watergate was bad, but the things mm-hmm. Donald Trump are doing are, you know, totally different. There's I don't understand. I, you know, I had probably two dozen people uh, tweeted us in response to the Stormy Daniels episode that says, oh, well, you know, he's not going to get arrested for adultery. And, uh, you know, oh, so what? So he's got to pay an FEC fine. You know, who cares? Right. Mm. You don't impeach a president over that. So I, I thought. It might be where we got a precedent of one. Let's go (laughs) back and find out. Right. Because we have the the successful impeachment but failed conviction of Bill Clinton to which we have compared. uh, And uh, again, uh, to to drive that lesson home, the distinction between Donald Trump and Bill Clinton is you heard Monica Lewinsky's story because Bill Clinton did not form an illegal LLC with the purpose of trying to cover up and buy Monica's
0: silence. Um, and by the way, even if they were (laughs) equal, which you're, you're right, they're not, even if they were, he still got impeached. Clinton still got impeached. So they could still do that part. Like, (laughs) but, but anyway, Uh, they're not equal. They're not, it's, it's
1: far worse. And, and, and and I, Bet on record. I, I if if Bill Clinton had done that, uh, then I, I think there is no doubt that the that the Senate would have voted to 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 convict. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I would have been with there I, I would have been right there with it, it of course that didn't happen um uh, because there i there are very few presidents in our nation's history about whom you would say uh I, I can envision this person uh circumventing that the that the nation's chief law enforcement official has decided to uh knowingly and willfully
0: circumvent the law
1: i, I think right. you ought to care about
0: that but any anyway. one such president who you might have thought that about would be Richard <laughs> maybe Nixon. Maybe one Richard Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, let's hop in uh, the uh, the metaphorical
1: time machine. The actual mm. time machine only works for TTTB. But yeah. uh, but our metaphorical time machine is going to take us back to 1972 before either of us were born, uh, and and it begins with. Uh, a fellow named G. Gordon Liddy, who was the finance counsel for an outfit called Creep, uh, the committee to reelect the president. Uh, <laughs> and yes, I think he named it that in, on purpose. In early 1972, he came up with a scheme to uh, reelect the president. Here was that that plan went through. He had all sorts of unbelievably crazy ideas. Uh, but but ultimately, here was the scaled down version of that plan. OK, and. That was that on May 28th of 1972, and again, I want to point out this is while the election is taking place. Richard Nixon is the incumbent president. He is running against Democrat George McGovern. The election will take place in November. Uh, So in May, Liddy uh, hired a guy to break into DNC headquarters at the Watergate Hotel Complex and install listening devices into the phones of two people. Again, this is 1972, so the phones are physically plugged into the wall. And the listening devices are, I'm not kidding, like they're like the, the, the thing you put in the socket is like the size of a marble, uh, but then it has to be connected via wire to something that is the size of a hardback book right so wow. again this is 1972 you know the james bond technologies was was pretty limited they got away with that with yeah. that bugging and but because it's 1972, the recording devices that were installed were huge and crazily unreliable, and so they had to be fixed. They were not producing any reliable information. And history is not really clear on, on uh, A, what the purpose of the listening devices were, right? Like they were, okay, they're listening to the strategy of the, the two uh, uh, chairmen, uh, but um, but it's, it's not really clear like what data they actually got, uh, what information they actually got or how the devices went wrong but either way after a couple of weeks they had to be fixed so on June 17th they needed to break in again to fix the devices and that's when they got caught and by the uh, way they got caught by a rent-a-cop security guard who noticed <laughs> yeah, that Paul this Blart. Elite, yeah at the Watergate hotel complex who noticed that uh, they had put tape over certain locks on the doors like duct tape right and the first walk through not just uh that he noticed it but like the security guard was walking through and he's like oh that's weird why is this lock taped but instead of calling somebody he was just like all right well i'm going to take that piece of tape off um, <laughs> yeah a, a, a hundred, i'm not making this up he pulled the tape off and then continued kind of his
0: walking well around i mean the what, complex. I just, what does he know i don't know he's just the security guard for a hotel right
1: I, if I discovered that the lock had been locked open, you, know, you might, but anyway, uh, he came around an hour later and noticed that the tape was back on. <laughs>
0: okay. Then maybe you. Call and somebody. at
1: that point, right. He called the police. Um, and the, uh, the police came to the premises and they caught five people red handed. Okay. Um. <laughs> And one of the five burglars was a guy named James McCord, and the other four were uh, these Cuban special operative guys, okay? Um, McCord had in his address book the name of another CIA guy, uh, E. Howard Hunt, and E. Howard Hunt worked for Gordon Liddy. And that's it, okay? There was zero direct evidence between any of these people and Richard Nixon. Uh, and by the way, these guys were caught, right, in June of 1972, they were caught during the election. The five burglars, Hunt and Liddy, who, again, that was a top Nixon aide. They were all indicted in September of 1972. And that had zero effect on the election at all. In November, yeah. Nixon won 49 states. He won 61%. Yeah, that's of the, what's so
0: funny about it. Yeah. They didn't even need to be doing any of this.
1: Yeah. I Nixon, mean, he was, was
0: easily going to win.
1: Yeah, uh, Liddy has said on the record that he thinks that, uh, uh, that that the motivation was for Nixon to win the largest electoral landslide in oh, history. Man, he that's wanted to win so Trumpian. That's so Trumpian. <laughs> uh, yeah. So 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 there we have that's the underlying crime. The crime is uh, a couple of dudes Far removed from the president, put tapes on the lock, went into the Democratic headquarters and installed some old timey listening devices that didn't produce any useful information, went back to try and fix it and got caught. That's it Mm
0: -hmm. now. Well, I mean, that is that really wasn't it eventually clear that the president was more directly involved in it? It wasn't just people I mean maybe you're going to go on to talk about this but. yeah absolutely but
1: but people are saying are contrasting or arguing that the underlying crime that we are talking about right which is setting up a fake LLC to pay hush money to a potentially dangerous witness 10 days before an election uh you know that that's not that, pff, that's a minor uh FEC yeah. violation and 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 if you want to argue on the basis of the underlying offense, uh, I think you would be hard pressed to argue that the underlying offense is, uh, is significantly different in either case. Right. Um, now election happens. Nixon wins 49 states. Now it's 1973. Um, and, and the first thing that happens in 1973 again Nixon is already president so right he doesn't have to be sworn in uh, he reaches a peace accord in Vietnam and his approval rating goes up to 68 percent okay so again let's keep this in, in context the public knew there was a scandal involving a break-in at the Watergate and they by and large didn't care right uh the the reaction was eh, yeah you know this is kind of you know whatever it is Um in April, eighty-three percent of of the American public had heard or read about Watergate, and presidential aides had already resigned. Uh, John Ehrlichman, H.R. Uh, Haldeman, they they had resigned. Um, so you know, look that this this thing had some traction, uh, but but Nixon was still in uh, his his approval ratings didn't dip below fifty percent until May, um, and what happened was at that time. The primary distinction between 1973 and today is the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives and the Senate. And so uh, they began uh, hearings uh, in the House of Representatives about Watergate and they were televised. And uh, at the time, right, because this is 1973, there, there are literally three channels to watch on television. And so... Uh, 85% estimates are between 70 and 85% of uh, the American public tuned in to watch the Watergate hearings. Um, and, uh, and Nixon's popularity started to go down. It hit a, a low of 31%, right? Which is kind of wow. Trump territory, even sub Trump. <laughs> I was going to say
0: that's a, that's a sort of a bad day for Trump. I
1: yeah, guess. Right. Um, and so the, the televised Watergate hearings um, did Drive up. All right. I mean, drove his approval ratings into the 30s. Uh, It resulted in, you know, contemporary polls showed that uh, people came to believe that uh, Watergate was a serious matter and all of that. Um, But in after the summer, right in October of 1973, uh, most people, even though they disapproved of Richard Nixon, uh, the majority of Americans didn't believe uh, that he should leave office let alone be impeached, right? So Gallup poll in October of of 1973 was that 26% thought that he should be impeached and forced to resign, 61% did not. Um, And Mm. a majority of Americans viewed the Watergate hearings as partisan, biased, and out to get the president. OK, wow. Republican pollsters found that just nine percent of the electorate listed Watergate as the top issue confronting the country. Forty two percent listed inflation. Right. So wow. the general view of people was, yeah, OK, there are these hearing I get it. There's a thing. And then, yeah, Libby worked for him or whatever. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's impeachment. Right. At the same time, however, because. Be, because of the seriousness, uh, the U.S. Attorney General Elliot Richardson had appointed a special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, and um, the former presidential uh, White House Counsel John Dean, who is now a uh, an MSNBC contributor and uh, and and a, a very interesting voice uh, to follow, had resigned, uh, which has some pretty interesting parallels to today. <laughs> and John Dean had. Spilled the beans uh, and and had testified uh, at length that uh, that Nixon knew about the break, uh, the break in uh, that he had directed that his campaign pay hush money uh, to cover up the break in. By the way, that hush money, twenty five thousand dollars, which is just about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in
0: today's. Oh, cut. wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, the price and, uh, of hush money, pretty consistent. Yeah, uh, apparently adjusted, that's the going Adjusted rate. hush money, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and Dean had let slip... Um, didn't say. Oh, by the way, Nixon tapes everything in the White House, but had made an offhanded remark about, like, oh, well, and the tape showed this, and and uh, and 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 Walter Cronkite had asked him, "What, what do you mean uh, tapes?" Right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, Dean said, "Oh, yeah, you yeah, know, Nixon tapes everything." And so Cox issued a subpoena to Nixon requesting uh, eighty, what was ultimately eighty-six separate uh, recordings, uh, taped conversations uh, from the Oval Office, and the president refused to comply with the subpoena. He made two arguments. The first argument was that as the president, he was immune from compulsory process because of the separation of powers. Um, so courts can't tell a sitting president what to do. Uh, and the second argument he made was executive privilege, right? These tapes contain my deliberations with my top officials, and uh, they are therefore absolutely immune from discovery. And The argument was uh, that any limitation on executive privilege, that the determinant rest with the Executive branch, so in other words, he would get to decide, so they get to decide what's relevant, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's it, here. We've
0: got some fuzz and silence you can listen to, <laughs> yeah.
1: Here's some room tone, yeah, right?
0: Yeah, and so it's as you might document. imagine,
1: that went to court. And in August, uh, district court judge John J. Sirica inter- entered an order that required Nixon to turn over the tapes. That was appealed to the DC circuit, uh, which then ruled en banc, seven nothing, uh, that Nixon had to turn them over. I'm going to link that. Uh, decision in the show notes Uh, that was October 12th and the DC circuit broadly rejected both of Nixon's arguments. They said, um, With respect to separation of powers, that though the president is elected by a nationwide ballot and is often said to represent all of the people, he does not embody the nation's sovereignty. He is not above the law's commands. With all of its defects, delays and inconveniences, men have discovered no technique for long preserving free government except that the executive be bound by the law. Sovereignty remains at all times with the people, and they do not forfeit through elections the right to have the law construed against and applied to every citizen. And that includes the president. That's still good mm. law today All right. with respect to privilege. They said, no, the <laughs> executive privilege, uh, is not absolute. And it certainly does not outweigh, uh, the compelling need, uh, of a grand jury to proceed to a criminal investigation. We've actually talked about this in a previous episode. Um, so, uh, generally presidents have to comply with valid, uh, court orders, uh, and specifically, uh, the court can require a president to comply with a subpoena in order to uh, further a criminal investigation, even if there is no criminal investigation of the president, right? Let alone when there is one. That's still
0: good law. And so. Yeah, there's a lot of still good law out of the Watergate era.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so the Nixon administration uh, was kind of stuck. This is my favorite bit of the story. It has nothing to do with, with today. Um, but uh, on October 19th, so one week after the decision comes out, decision comes out on a Friday. A week later, <laughs> Nixon makes this offer. He says – uh, uh, to Archibald Cox. He says, I'm not going to give you the tapes, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give the tapes to Senator John Stennis of Mississippi, and I'm going to let him listen to the tapes and summarize them and give you that. Okay. Wow. John Stennis, he's like, a hey, John Stennis is a Democrat. Now, John Stennis was a racist Dixiecrat, and also John Stennis was <laughs> almost certainly death at the time that Nixon made this uh, <laughs> offer. And it was, I was
0: truly
1: like Trumpian in, its nature. Like I'm going to wow. have this deaf
0: racist guy uh, transcribe these tapes. Um, yeah. From what I remember from the tapes, there's a lot of anti-Semitism and racism. In yes. That, so it makes sense that he'd want to like, give it, yeah, yeah. Here, let me let a Klansman listen to this and just see. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, shockingly, uh, Archibald Cox, uh, refused that compromise. Um, and, uh, and then there was this question of, okay, so now what's Nixon going to do? And mm-hmm. the answer is that Saturday, uh, he called up his attorney general, uh, Elliot Richardson and said, I want you to fire special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. Uh, and the attorney general said, Mr. President, I'm not going to do that. And he said, no, you get it. You, I'm uh, directing you to do that. And he, and so, uh, Richardson resigned. Um, And so then Nixon called up the deputy attorney general, William Ruckelschaus, and ordered him to fire Cox and Ruckelschaus refused and resigned. So Nixon brought in solicitor general who's third in line at the Justice Department um, and our friend uh, from uh, two from last week. Robert Bork, um, Solicitor General. I should point out that the job of Solicitor General is to argue in court on behalf of the administration. Right? Um, it is. It is not. It's not to make personnel decisions and correct. So, sent a limo. Brought Robert Bork to the White House, swore him in as acting attorney general, and then told Robert Bork to fire Cox. And Bork said, sure, boss. (laughs) And in in fact, what a guy Bork, in response to media inquiries the next day, issued this statement, which was all I will say is that I carried out the president's directive, (laughs) Uh, which (laughs) which I'm going to link the uh, Washington Post article from uh, October 21st, 1973. So Bork fired Cox. That night, so that's a Saturday night. Cox's office and his press aides, the the, the deputy prosecutor who who remained there, held a news conference and uh, and read the following statement, which uh, I, I want to read for our listeners, which is: "Whether ours shall continue to be a government of laws and not of men is now for Congress." and ultimately the American people. This was called the Saturday Night Massacre. 50,000 people wrote in to the government. 21 members of Congress introduced resolutions calling for Nixon's impeachment. And so uh, within a week and a half, Nixon instructed Robert Bork to appoint a new prosecutor. They appointed Colonel Leon Jaworski. And the reason they did that is that Two weeks after that, on November fourteenth, a federal district judge, uh, Judge Gasell, ruled that the firing was illegal. Right. So they look. They knew they were about to be reversed by in court. You know, could you? Could they have then appealed the ruling? And uh, what they decided to do was sort of you know head. So wait,
0: the firing of the special prosecutor was
1: illegal. Yep, it was illegal because the the special prosecutor could only have been fired for cause. Uh, That statute has been changed. Uh Okay, so uh, oh. <laughs> we cannot. Yeah, we can't rely on that decision. Oh, that's not and, good. and I'm not arguing we should rely on on that decision. So, uh, in order to kind of head off that decision, they they appointed a new prosecutor. They appointed Jaworski. Jaworski was a really interesting guy. He he had this this kind of strange past. He was the personal lawyer for Lyndon Johnson. And um, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever read. Um, uh, Robert Caro's uh, The Path to Power? No. I highly recommend it. It's, it's hmm. one of my all-time favorite books. And it, it talks about how Lyndon Johnson won the 1948 congressional election. And if you read Caro's book, you will come away with – the uh, it, I mean it is a slam dunk case that they stole that election that it was it was out wow. and out fraud right the 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 there are photographs in there of <laughs> this key precinct right so it was down to a hundred and ninety odd votes right and so they took a precinct and they took the ta- the tabulated sheets uh, which said and I'm making up the the number here the, the important thing is it begins with a seven it began like so seven hundred and thirty two votes and they. Drew a circle around the seven oh, and turned it yeah. into a nine. And then when they went to the actual voting rolls, they added 200 people. Uh, to the voting rolls, but they took them off the voting rolls in alphabetical order. So wow. the argument that was remain yeah, and then and then what Corot did was he and they're all in the same handwriting, they're all in the same pen color. And they're, you know, it's like Andy Abelson, right? Like <laughs> they're listed in alphabetical order. Uh when when what this is is it's meant to be a check-in record of, of when of when they voted. So there's no time next to it. But what Corot did was he looked up the last guy on the list. Let's call him Thomas Smith and he tracked him down and said, hey Mr. Smith, do you remember Voting in 1948, and he was like, yeah, yeah, "Yeah, you know." And I was definitely the last guy. I voted at you know 6:59, and the polls closed at, at seven o'clock. Uh, and then and then Caro says, and I, I'm I'm ad libbing this, but but Caro says, so in order to believe that this is an accurate account, you would have to believe that 200 people lined up in alphabetical order at 7 <laughs> p.m. in alphabetical order to vote for Lyndon Johnson wow
0: which uh
1: so I had no idea and Jaworski defended Lyndon Johnson and got him off right uh, against charges uh that the election was fraudulent and and got him off and so a lot of people were pretty suspicious of Nixon and Bork appointing uh Jaworski uh, but as it turns out in an analog to to Mueller um J- Jaworski kept uh Cox's staff uh he conducted a, a thorough and fair uh, investigation, and he uh, reissued the subpoena to Nixon requesting the tapes. Um, that was then ultimately uh, appealed uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, once the Supreme Court ruled uh, eight to nothing that Nixon had to turn over the tapes, uh, then that was you know uh, several weeks before the end. Right? That was uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nixon was was uh, uh, clearly uh, about to resign. Um, Jaworski went on, by the way, he's the uh, – he, he joined up with uh, William Fulbright to to turn uh, the law firm into Fulbright and Jaworski, which is what it was known as when I was applying uh, uh, in law school, one of the uh, kind of white shoe uh, firms that I was looking at. And today they are now known as Norton Rose Fulbright, uh, which is a 4,000 lawyer global law firm. Um, you know, they're, they're Covington and Burling type. They're a Top-notch multinational. So there's the history of the Saturday Night Massacre. Um, there's there's a ton more that we should talk about in the future episodes of what the tape showed and why they were showed so damaging. But the lesson that I want to draw here is uh, uh, kind of twofold. Right, number one, firing the prosecutor really was. The beginning of the end for Richard Nixon. Yeah. Right. It tanked his approval rating to 25%. And afterwards, the next poll that was conducted was a an Oliver Quayle poll for NBC News. And it showed 44% of U.S. citizens favored impeaching Nixon, 43% opposed, 13% undecided. Right. So a 15 point swing. Right. In should Nixon be impeached. Um, in, in November, uh, the Gallup poll showed a, about the same thing, uh, about 40% favoring impeachment. And that kind of leads to the second thing, which was October, November, right? Late October, November of 1973, uh, was when Nixon's support tanked all the way down to 25%. Um, he didn't resign from office until August of 1974, right? It took 10 months. And by the way, like if you look at the graph uh which I'll link in the show notes, right? It, it, he didn't budge from 25% uh from you know, you know there's some some variation up and down, but but you know, it's not like he ever went into the 40s or 50s uh after that. The public knew they'd made up their mind on the Saturday night massacre. Hey, it, this is
0: appropriate, right? This is you, tell you what though. This is the bridge too far. Tell you what, he didn't have Fox News. Yeah, no, I. I he didn't have an army of propagandizers, uh, to, you know, making the case. Oh well, this uh, Mueller is unqualified. He's that's a breach of you know twenty four seven. So I don't know. I, I, I,
1: I am not. I'm very explicitly not doing this as a prediction segment. Right, you yeah. and I have been disappointed uh, pretty routinely for 16 months now. I am doing this as a as a, a call to action, and and, and mm-hmm. I am saying that uh, what made Nixon impeachable, what led to Nixon resigning, was the fact that uh, he he plainly abused the powers of his office uh, by. Uh, directing
0: his subordinates to fire the special prosecutor. There is no distinction. And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Republicans could have kept him in. They could have, because it's not, I don't think Democrats had whatever 60, what do you need, 66 or something for conviction? Uh, You know, they, they, I'm pretty sure they could have kept him in and, and, well, cutting to the end of the story. But the point is the case that we need to make is that Republicans need to actually hold Trump accountable. Or if the same thing were to happen with Trump, he i mean there's nothing to stop him from getting away with it unless the republicans decide to stop him yeah no that is exactly right look like that that's that's why i added that second part
1: right which is when when trump is at 25% right trump that's a that's a nice malapropism uh when nixon was at 25% right that was an approval rating of 50% from republicans right that is and yeah. and, and and look like that's bad but that is still saying you've got half your base right um and and so it was always the question of ha- how much of our base is going to hold uh yeah the democrats only had 54 seats in the senate in 1974 uh, mm-hmm. so it it could not be on a partisan basis we said this in episode the very first episode in which we introduced yodel mount right what what makes it ultimately accountable is when Republicans say, yeah, I, I I can't back this guy anymore. And what I want to encourage right, I know I've encouraged a lot of, you know, hey, uh these things, uh, you know, the 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 wheels of justice grind slowly, right? The Mueller investigation is going to take a long time. I I, I want to continue to reiterate that, right? Like uh, it, it, in no way am I saying we should be complacent, right? We should be vigilant. Like, that's why we do this show twice a week. <laughs> that's why we're out there, you know, promoting our episodes and uh, and talking about these serious issues. The other side has a vested interest in getting you to feel like, oh, well, look, if, you know, uh, uh, if this hasn't resulted in this by now, then there's nothing there and we just have to give up and it's all over. And I, I get that, right? Like, I'm, I am frustrated. You heard last Friday, right? Like, I am frustrated that donald trump has conceded in open court that he is dd uh and yet the press doesn't seem to have figured that out um that that makes it incumbent on all of us to continue to make sure that they stay on that but don't give in to despair because you know even when the tipping point happens even when the smoking gun comes out you know it it can take a while and it can take a while to to unwind those things. Um, yeah. I am hoping that an analogy uh, is uh, in just as John Dean started spilling the beans in 1973, we learned today that the president's lawyer, John Dowd, uh, has resigned from his team. And John Dowd, uh, we've, we've talked about him. He was the uh, fantastic legal mind that brought down Pete Rose. He was the author of the Dowd Report. Um, it was a little bit. Depressing for me to see him, him line up and be uh, the president's personal lawyer on uh, uh, on the Mueller investigation, and um, and Dowd has finally had enough. Uh, so uh, I can only hope that uh, that he is the John Dean of of our generation.
0: Well, but is he? St- so how much of that is still when you quit? I think you've answered this before, but when you quit, wh- how much? St- it's not as though. Trump loses all of the, uh, you know, client attorney-client privilege or something, right? Oh, yeah. That no, look, have, it or? would
1: very clearly violate attorney-client privilege if John Dowd were to talk about any matters with which he has consulted with the president. My hope is that John Dowd is 238 years old. Uh, he has had a long and storied career. He does not need to practice uh, law anymore.
0: And Oh, so he could just eat it. Eh, he could just take the disbarment. Yeah.
1: My hope is that he takes the disbarment. Um, it, okay. it, uh, it was very clearly, and again, I want to go back to the, the, the Dowd report, right? Like it was very clearly important to him to preserve the integrity of the game of baseball, right? It was crucially hmm. important for him to document that Pete Rose had gambled on the Cincinnati Reds while managing the Cincinnati Reds, because in his view that if that were left as, uh, a, a, an open question, then, uh, to Dowd, right? You could never trust a baseball game again, right? And it would permanently destroy the institution of baseball. And if you feel that passionately about Major League Baseball, I can only hope that you feel that passionately about the United States <laughs> yeah. government. Uh, maybe he uh, doesn't, but you know, look, yeah. we're we're several hours in, so we will we will see, we'll see. what what John Dowd does, but.
0: Um, Gosh, I I hope so. All right. Well, good note, good line to go out on. (laughs) I could I could also go out on
1: the likely candidate to step up to fill the void. So uh, the reports that I've seen are that Jay Sekulow is going to take over as uh, head of uh, Trump's legal team dealing with the Mueller investigation, oh. and Jay Sekulow is a moron. Jay Sekulow <laughs> is truly one of the stupidest lawyers I have ever seen. Um, wow. I know I'm saying that
0: a lot, like, but it. it uh, but hey, that's what that's what Trump attracts. I mean, you—it's uh, not the best people. Uh, <laughs> Trump's not giving us. Their best it it is
1: not just because, you know, Seculo has started the, uh, you know, American uh, Council for Law and Justice, the, you know, Pat Robertson evangelical equivalent of the ACLU that has tilted at windows. Like, I mean, every time this man speaks about the law, like I feel like. Uh, you know, you could run circles around him, <laughs> like, so, uh, yeah, so we got that coming too, uh, if, uh, oh, I can't if it's secular, but, uh, but I, I really want to, I really want to put our, our hopes in, uh, in, in John Dowd. So, you know, whatever, right.
0: however. Well, uh, that's it for part one of the, uh, the Watergate history there, but it, it looks like we've got enough for a, a solid part two later on down the road, I right? I think we do. All right. Well, thanks for the breakdown, Andrew. Very interesting stuff. He who questions training only trains himself at asking questions. What? All right. Listener question time. Paul Wheelie asks, I have questions about the meaning of Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, the Guarantee Clause, which states that the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. What practical effect does this have on how state governments can function? Hmm, interesting question. So is that just kind of words that are just like, yeah, yeah. All right. doesn't really do anything. Or does that have any tangible effect on, uh, on government?
1: Yeah. And you might imagine, right. That seems pretty clear language. Uh, why haven't we cited this particular provision that guarantee clause in our redistricting yeah, yeah.
0: segments, right? I was going to say, yeah, for gerrymandering and stuff.
1: Yeah. And the answer is, for over 150 years, the Supreme Court has said that that provision is what they call Mm. non-justiciable, which is to say uh, it means nothing. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it means that the courts don't have jurisdiction over it, that it is a provision that applies to congress and all of that comes from an 1849 case called luther versus borden 48 us1 i'll link it in the show notes for all of our fans that enjoy reading 19th century cases this is a weird case okay so here's what happened in in luther versus borden it involved a time in american history called the door rebellion um, and uh, if like Me, it's been a long time since you've taken U.S. history. You might have to go to Wikipedia and refresh your recollection as to what the Door Rebellion was. Um, It was in Rhode Island in the middle of the 19th century, you had to be not only a white man to vote, uh, which was typical of the United States at the time, but you had to own real property. Yeah. This was called being a freeholder in the uh, parlance of the hmm. Supreme Court at the time. Um, and so people literally took up arms and tried to uh, overthrow the what was called the charter government of the state of Rhode Island. And and here's the unique is I did not know this at all. I probably knew it back in high school, but I I did not have this at my recollection until hmm. researching <laughs> this question. Um Prior to 1843, Rhode Island didn't have a constitution. (laughs) So (laughs) let me quote from Luther versus Borden. When the separation from England took place, Rhode Island did not, like the other states, adopt a new constitution, but continued the form of government established by the Charter of Charles II in 1663, making only such alterations by acts of the legislature as were necessary to adapt it to their condition and rights as an independent state. It was under this form of government that Rhode Island united with the other states in the Declaration of Independence and afterwards ratified the Constitution of the United States and became a member of this union, and it continued to be the established and unquestioned government of the state until the difficulties took place, which have given rise to this action. Um, so yeah, Rhode Island never adopted a constitution. They kept their charter government from the King of England, <laughs> despite rebelling against wow. the King of England. So that seems to be a pretty good case to allege under Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution that the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. How can it be a Republican form of government if it is a grant of authority, a charter declaration by a foreign monarch? <laughs> seems, seems like a pretty good argument to me, right? Um, and the Supreme Court rejected that. The Supreme Court said under this article of the Constitution, it rests with Congress to decide which government is the established one in a state. For as the United States guaranteed each state a Republican government, Congress must necessarily decide what government is established in the state before it can determine whether it is Republican or not. And when the senators and representatives of a state are admitted into the councils of the union, the authority of the government under which they are appointed, as well as its Republican character, is recognized by the proper constitutional authority, and its decision is binding on every other department of the government and could not be questioned in a judicial tribunal. So... 1849, Luther versus Borden, the Supreme Court said, um, yeah, that clause means that it's Congress's job to figure out what the government is. And if they let a state into the union, they must necessarily have decided that it is a Republican form of government. You can't challenge that in court. Um, Now, that's what we mean by non-justiciable controversy. It means you can't challenge it in court. Uh, Now, is there a potential crack in the armor? Uh, Paul Whealy sent uh, a law review article arguing that uh maybe it should be right maybe they got it wrong
0: well i was uh, gonna say maybe i just make sure i'm understanding it i mean yeah. it's one thing to say okay if they've led a state in then they've decided it's a republican form of government but that i mean is there any ongoing uh obligation to be a republican form of government or is it just like you get in and then what if the state just turns into some ridiculous uh you know, totally non-representative farce like some of our states are kind of turning into with gerrymandering, Uh, is there any ongoing obligation or is it just because they were made in a state, then it it was fine?
1: Yeah, and and the answer to that is, even if there is, this is the language of of the decision, Mm. the right to decide is placed there, that is in the Congress, and not in the courts. Interesting. So in other words, the courts don't get to decide no matter what. Um, and, and lots of people have asked the exact hypothetical that you've asked, right, which is, okay, you admit a state into the union and then they abolish the Constitution and it becomes, you know, a dictatorship. And the answer is uh, under the current analysis and longstanding practice of the Supreme Court that the the remedy to be found would not be found in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution. Mm. Now, I think, mind you, we've told you that. Luther v. Borden is from 1849, so it predates uh, the 14th Amendment by several decades. So I I think you would have, just like in the gerrymandering cases, a really, really good argument that uh, the states, uh, you know, if you had a, a, a monarchy in Rhode Island, uh, that it would not be guaranteeing to all citizens equal protection of the laws. Um, but, but you would not be able to bring a lawsuit challenging the named monarchy or theocracy or whatever, challenging the structure of the government under the clause of the constitution that says the co- <laughs> that the US government shall guarantee a Republican form of government to every state, um, If that seems a little counterintuitive to you, uh, I I should point out it seemed counterintuitive to uh, former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who Hmm. uh, in a 1992 opinion in dicta, uh, so not as part of the holding, said, here's what she said. The view that the Guarantee Clause implicates only non-justiciable political questions has its origin in Luther v. Borden, in which the court was asked to decide in the wake of Doors' rebellion which of two rival governments was the legitimate government of Rhode Island. The court held that it rests with Congress and not not the judiciary. This view has not always been accepted. In a group of cases decided before the holding of Luther was elevated into a general rule of non-justiciability, the court addressed the merits of claims found in the guarantee clause without any suggestion that those claims were not justiciable. And then she cites to... Justice Harlan's dissent from Plessy versus Ferguson, which was 1896, so after Luther V. Borden, that racial segregation was, quote, inconsistent with the guarantee given by the Constitution to each state of a Republican form of government, and citing this clause. So then she says, more recently, the court has suggested that perhaps not all claims are non-justiciable. And then she cites to contemporary commentators. And we've talked about how law review articles can sometimes affect uh, how jurisprudence goes. She cites right. to Lawrence tribe, well-known liberal, uh, constitutional scholar, to- unimpeachably uh, genius. We've mentioned him on the show before. Uh, John Hart Eli, um, not somebody I've mentioned before, but again, uh, liberal constitutional theorist and somebody I I respect greatly. So cites to all of these law review articles and then says, we need not resolve this difficult question today because the merits of that particular case didn't turn on the guarantee clause. They they were able to resolve it under something else. So you might say, Mm. okay, cool. So there's a crack in the armor. Uh, Maybe they're going to revisit it. Um, But, To throw a little bit of cold water on that, since 1992, uh, that case, uh, which is New York versus United States, has only been cited by the Supreme Court twice and not for this provision. In fact, for the opposite, it's been cited for the provision that Congress cannot directly uh, require the states to govern according to their instructions. So. It was suggested that maybe we should revisit Luther, but that suggestion hasn't really gone anywhere in, uh, in 25 and a half years. So I, I got to tell you, the current status of the guarantee clause is a dead letter, is it's non-justiciable. Uh, I'm going to link two law review articles in the show notes because you uh, you you know, you know you wrote in, and people who are interested <laughs> in diving into these questions uh, may, may find them interesting. But right now that debate is taking place uh, in academic circles and uh, and not in the courts, so it's not going to provide any relief in uh, gerrymandering cases. It is a, a non justiciable political question.
0: Ah, well, that's a shame. Oh, well. yep. <laughs> keep fighting. We'll find it. Ho- hopefully, yeah. someday we'll find another way to to ensure actual uh, representative government. But <laughs> great question, and appreciate the answer. And now it is time to thank our new patrons at Patreon.com/slash/law. And uh, it's such a good time to uh, join up because you're going to get the Q and A that's happening later today. You're going to get the uh, lot awful movies that's coming at you very soon. And for anyone unfamiliar, once again, we uh, take a movie or show, a usually a law related <laughs> movie or show, and uh, we poke fun at it and uh, point out how ridiculous it is in terms of uh, its grasp of the law. It's a lot of fun. It, it's it's worth checking out. So uh, good time to be on Patreon.com/slash law. And we've got to thank, we got lots of new patrons this week. Peter Dolan, Ryan Everton, David Shields, Acolte Veritatis, SGU Trickle Down, <laughs> Ryan Moran, Jeff Freeman, Alex, Alex Sperling, a poorly named user, <laughs> David Satz, Jonathan Smith, Rowan Catu, I don't know how to pronounce that, sorry, <laughs> Hal Finkel, Pamela Martin, and anonymous, uh, yeah. thank you so much for your pledges. Yep, and thank you to Adam
1: Hutchins, to Michael Veer, Janine Syrup, Carlos Garcia, Thomas Pikarsky, Keenan McLaughlin, Bob Biggs, Jake Clark, Ingmar Svensen, Jeremy Maggie, Amos, Brian Cassell tweet all life threats at Eli Bosnick, <laughs> Larry Yellingman, adopt a homeless person, but remember to de- to declaw and ear dock them. <laughs> Not sure that's great advice, but thank you for the pledge. And Flavio Spaini, Thank you all so much for pledging. We we really do appreciate it. Hey, enjoy that Q&A tonight. Enjoy the lot awful movies. And thanks for making the show possible.
0: Yeah, can't wait. Oh,
1: no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam.
0: No kidding. And now it's time to find out uh, how good my math was <laughs> on this question. I don't know. who. how much uh, can a teacher re- reclaim? It's a bizarre accounting question, but uh, let's hear it. All right, Thomas. Yeah, uh,
1: you picked B, $4,200, uh, and you calculated that as saying, yeah, she was hired at 10000 uh, ultimately the only job she could get uh, – was for six thousand so that's a four thousand dollar differential and also you chose to compensate her for two hundred dollars spent traveling to interview for a job she didn't get uh at the only other nearby summer camp uh after uh she had been notified that uh somebody else was going to be hired and i am pleased to tell you that that answer is correct all right uh, this question was testing the ordinary measure of damages in contract, right? Mm. And so the principle of contract is that we award compensatory, but not punitive damages, right? There are Exceptions, but uh, but by and large, a contract is meant to compensate the person uh, who was the non-breaching party, the person who uh, was the the victim of the other other party's breach, and the standard measure of damages is the amount that would allow the non-breaching party to uh, be put in the position that they would have been in if the contract uh-huh. had been performed. So. What does that mean? Uh, that means while you are mitigating your damages, right, which is what uh, uh, what this teacher was doing, uh, finding another job, uh, the expenses you incur, the reasonable expenses uh, that you incur in mitigating your damages can be recovered even if the expenses did not lead to the successful effort to mitigate, right? So yeah. the – uh, the
0: Well, that makes sense because like as part of the difficulty of having to, you know, find another job or whatever it is, like when someone breaks a contract, part of the difficulty would be you might have to try, you know, do a bunch of work and time and money to go make up for what you lost. So it makes sense that even if it wasn't successful, you'd still get the money.
1: Yeah, and also there's there's an economic theory behind that, which is uh you want it is called the theory of the efficient breach, right? Like if it's possible for both parties to be made better off, you don't want to create perverse incentives that make that not happen, right? So if uh the teacher was unable to uh recover her expenses in interviewing, then she just wouldn't both, even bother, right? Yeah, in that case, right, you have an efficient breach scenario. Everybody is better off. And so you don't want to create the perverse incentives to have the teacher not interview uh, because she's not going to get repaid because it might lead to an outcome that's better for everybody. And so uh, that the attractive distractor here was uh, you, you had to parse through both levels of the question. Number one, do you get all of the money because the other party breached the contract you correctly figured out no you don't get all the money because that would be punitive you get to be in the position you would have been in had the contract been performed uh and does that uh position include unsuccessful efforts to mitigate damages and
0: the answer is yes so great job congratulations all right what wow. I'm excited okay i'm back on the uh Back on the up and up, I, I guess that one did end up being pretty straightforward. But I'll tell you what, I you know, listening to opening arguments helped me answer that question. I don't know that I would have known all that had I not been an avid fan of this show. So let's find out. Hop in your time machine, Andrew, and as your very limited, uh, nearly useless time machine, but it's got one <laughs> very good use uh, out of <laughs> all the potential use it could have. Tell us who is the winner of this week's TTGBE. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Thomas, we had a lot of people playing along
1: this week on Twitter and Facebook, and a lot of people guessing B. There were a bunch of great Douglas Adams references because of the whole 42. It's 100 times more persuasive. I thought that that was pretty funny. But I thought the best answer this week comes from... 27,394 days on Twitter at 27394 days. Who guessed D, who says, step one, D is the correct answer. Step two, sign contracts with all the companies. Step three, get them to all back out. Step four, profit. So I thought that was a great explanation of why D is clearly an incorrect answer. I love the uh ballsiness of being willing to. Guess the wrong answer in order to make your point on Twitter. I think twenty-seven thousand three hundred ninety-four days knew that it was B and was trying to get our attention this way. Well, worked this time. So congratulations, you're this week's winner.
0: Everyone give twenty-seven thousand three hundred ninety-four days a follow on Twitter. All right. Thanks so much for playing. Congratulations to our now famous winner. Uh, And (laughs) (laughs) that's it for today's show. Looking forward to, again, a lot of awful movies coming at you real soon. And also uh, Friday, another newsworthy rapid response episode. Those are uh, so useful. And uh, when you're not getting that, you're getting awesome historical breakdowns of (laughs) Watergate and stuff like that. So keep on listening, keep on sharing, and we'll see you next time. You
2: betray the this has been opening arguments with andrew and thomas if you love the show and want to support future episodes please visit our patreon page at patreon.com slash law if you can't support us financially it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on itunes stitcher or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use and be sure to tell all your friends about us for questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. Is production of Opening Arguments Media LLC. All rights reserved.
1: Opening Arguments is produced with the help of our editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, production assistant Natalie Newell, and our unofficial researcher Magpie. A special thanks to the moderators of the Opening Arguments Facebook community, Natalie, Alicia Cook, Eric Brewer, and Emily Waters. And also thanks to Thomas Smith, who wrote and produced all of the amazing music you hear, which is used with his permission.